A quick warning. This episode includes graphic descriptions of violence that some listeners may find disturbing. Previously on American Jihadi. So like, it's really fun to go in. It's not a joke anymore. There were two camps in Al-Shabaab. Godanes was the more ruthless and the more brutal. They blow up innocent people in coffee places, in hotels, in weddings. Hamami found himself on the side of Al-Shabaab that started to call for some moderation. What happened was he just became part of my, my daily life and the people I talked to every day. How many times I would be like, oh man, I think this guy is suffering too and he's just in his own way suffering because you see the person as somebody you know now. I'm still married, but I think I'm getting divorced. Six years. No kids. No kids. The tweet, there for anyone who wanted to see it, read, just been shot in neck by Shabab assassin. On April 25th, 2013, Omar posted a photo of himself on Twitter, bleeding from the throat. He said he'd been shot by a Shabab assassin. I messaged him to call me ASAP. He wrote back a few minutes later that the bullet wound made it hard for him to talk. Later, he tweeted that armed men were coming from multiple directions and that the leader of al-Shabaab, Abdi Gadane, had gone mad. Then, Omar's Twitter feed went silent. Two days later, I got a voicemail. Christoph. Yeah, Christoph, still alive, man. Just got a bloody bullet to the neck. Um, and uh, we, we had some fighting. Three of them died. So then we were kind of on the run. So I'm going to start calling you back later, so be, be ready to call me back. Omar had called me from up in a tree after fleeing into the forest. It took me two more days to get him on the phone. Hey, man. So you're... <laughs> fuck, man. So you're alive. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy yeah. For the entire year since Omar had first reached out to me, he had been insisting that there were people in al-Shabaab who wanted to kill him. Now, it seemed all of a sudden his dire predictions were coming true. How's your neck? Your neck. Where you were shot? Are you okay? Are you, okay? Are you wounded? You can come talking to me other than that. I'm Christoph Putzel. This is American Jihadi. Episode 7 The Chase. Well, your parents are going to be very happy. They were so scared, man. Your father called me and he was crying. He thought it was all over. So tell me, what happened? I pieced together Omar's story over the course of two phone calls. According to Omar, he had been sitting in a tea shop a few nights before when someone fired three shots from behind him. One of the bullets grazed his neck. Jesus, man. Okay. Omar got away and made his way back to the house where he'd been staying. He spent the night hiding out in a trench behind the house with a couple of other foreign fighters. The Shabab found them the next morning and ordered Omar and the other men to drop their weapons and come with them to court. Wait, I don't get this part. Wait, they tried, to, they tried to shoot you and then, they tried to kill you and then summoned you to court like the next day? Yeah, that's what's stupid about it. Like if you, if you really want to 
telling somebody to call, like, why are you going to do it after you shoot them in the neck? <laughs> <laughs> why do they need to surround my house with, like, a uh, hundred, like, troops if, if, if the whole issue is just they want to tell me to go to court? What played out was a kind of microcosm of Omar's entire feud with al-Shabaab. Omar insisting on proving that he was right, the powers that be insisting Omar just do what they say. When they couldn't agree on whether Omar could keep his gun with him, the Shabab said court was over. They would give Omar a head start. And then they were going to come and kill him. They said, no, no, no. You people, you, uh, you refuse to uh, drop your weapons, right? So just go home and see what happens. Omar and the men who were with him headed into the forest. Well, we know that they're going to be following our footprints. But then we After 30 minutes, they heard the three men who were hunting them. Omar set a trap, rigging up a timed explosive device using TNT. When the three men got close enough, Omar opened fire. I, I shot one guy like, in the chest three times or something, then we all started shooting. The TNT exploded. Then everything went silent. Omar left the bodies in the woods. One more time, he had managed to survive, but he seemed increasingly aware that his luck wouldn't last forever. In June, Omar called me from the forest where he'd been hiding out for two months. He told me that Abdi Gadane's men had assassinated two important Al-Shabaab dissidents. They got taken out one by one, yeah. When I mentioned I thought I'd finished the article I was writing about him by September. September. Yeah, September issue. Well, I'd be dead by September, right? He told me he'd be dead by September. What Omar didn't tell me, but may have already known, is that the next set of assassins probably wouldn't be amateurs. They would be from Gadane's elite unit of spies, the Omniot. They're the hit squad. Within the group, you will fear the most the Omniots because they're always there gathering intelligence, executing people, they are everywhere, and within the group, they know if they cross any line, their consequence very lethal. Malik Abdallah was a spokesman for the Somali government in 2013. He says that if the Omniot were after Omar, Omar would have known enough to be terrified. They are very professional in what they're doing, and you don't know who's part of it. That's the problem. It could be somebody in, within your team it could be a driver, it could be the shopkeeper, it could be the imam at the mosque, it could be anyone. You don't know who's part of, of that group. They are very sophisticated in the way they operate. Even in the forest, it would have been difficult for Omar to hide. He would have been in pretty dire straits, whether it was the heat or the thirst or just running into to someone. Security expert Matt Bryden is familiar with the Southern Bay region, where Omar was believed to be. You cannot move unobserved throughout Southern Somalia as a foreigner. There's always, you know, a kid herding goats coming out from behind a rock or a nomadic family within a stone's throw. You can't know who's who until you meet them, and you can't know how they're going to react to you. According to the reporting of Somali journalist Haroon Marouf, Omar decided that things had finally gotten so bad that he needed to leave Somalia. A smuggler agreed to transport him from Kenya through South Sudan and then to Libya. In late August of 2013, Omar and five companions began heading southwest. On September 3rd, about 100 miles from the Kenyan border, Omar came to an area where he was able to get a satellite signal. 
He couldn't resist taking one last public jab at Abdi Gadane. So he arranged a radio interview with Marouf on Voice of America. You seem to have a problem with the leader of Al-Shabaab. What's the cause of the problem? The cause of the problem is that basically he's uh, left uh, the principles of our religion and he's turned the Shabaab into an organization that oppresses every single uh, Muslim. We had reported some time back that he tried to kill you. Was that true? Exactly what happened? He's trying to kill me because I know uh, enough about his uh, organization to know that he doesn't abide by the, the principles of Islam. And uh, he doesn't want that to get out to the, to the public. It isn't clear what happened next. Whether Omar angered Gudane so much that he demanded retribution, or if the phone interview revealed Omar's location, or even if the plan to smuggle Omar out of the country had been a trap all along. According to Maruf's sources, Omar and his five companions continued south. A week after the radio interview, they stopped for water at a reservoir near a village called Abakbul. They paid the man who owned it, and they asked him not to tell anyone from the Shabab that they had been there. It wasn't long before men from Gadane's hit squad Omniat learned that Omar was there. They gathered more men to flood the area and waited. Early the next morning, Omar walked into their ambush. There was a firefight. Omar was killed, along with two other men from his group. Their bodies were buried in unmarked graves near the banks of the Juba River. Omar's mother, Deborah, was at home in Alabama when she got the call. It was about 7 o'clock in the morning, and the phone rang, and I thought, well, maybe it's somebody calling from school, you know. And I picked up the phone, and uh, I think it was some embassy or somewhere in London or something, and he was like, have you heard your son has been killed? And I don't really think it registered with me. So I talked for a few minutes, and Shafiq said, he's dead, he's dead. They say he's dead. And I was in so uh, much shock or denial. Shafiq's like, well, are you going to school today? And I'm like, sure, I'm going to work. So I got on my clothes, got in the car, and I got about probably 10 or 15 minutes from here. And I got at a stoplight. And all at once it just registered in my brain. And I just started screaming and screaming, no, 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 and just crying and crying. Deborah called me and told me the news that same morning. I was lying on a half-inflated air mattress on the floor of my new apartment. I felt a surge of heat in my chest. My hands started to shake. My immediate reaction was to work. I put together a news story about Omar and then rushed to the airport. I had just started a new job that week as a reporter for Al Jazeera America, and I wanted to present the piece from the main studio in Washington, D.C. But my flight was canceled, so a producer ended up reading my report on the air. In 2006, Omar Hamami, a 23-year-old American born and bred in Alabama, left his family and his friends to join the Islamic holy war in Somalia. Because I never made it to D.C., three and a half years of my life were boiled down to four minutes of copy 
read by somebody else. To the end, Hamami was resigned to his fate and unrepentant about his cause, determined not to surrender. As a journalist, I'd always prided myself on getting in with so-called bad guys, hitmen and skinheads and Omar. I was good at withholding judgment, allowing intimacy to develop between me and my subjects so they would feel comfortable enough to reveal to me what they might not tell anyone else. Only with Omar, it had gone further. He'd become human to me in a way that made his death confusing. I felt the loss of him. He wasn't a friend, but he was a person I'd spent years trying to understand. Still, I knew he had done terrible things. A normal person will, wouldn't have done what he had done. There must be something else pushing him to, to go to that place and join that group. Al-Shabaab, they are pure evil. Malik Abdullah had lived through decades of war in Somalia and lost dozens of friends to terrorist attacks. He made the case against Omar in very plain terms. I mean, in the, the real true Islam is only Allah knows about paradise and hell and where you're going to go. And for him to say he was going to be martyr and it's just fantasies that he had. And it's just crazy. It just shows you how crazy he was. This whole thing of fighting for religion or killing on behalf of God, you know, it's God didn't tell you to kill people. In my effort to keep Omar talking, I sometimes compartmentalized the details of the violence he had done in the name of his faith. I promised myself that I'd come back to those details when it was finally time to report them. Now that Omar was dead though, it all jumbled together in my mind. There's this one recording of a phone call between Omar and me. I have like the right to do what's necessary to end the person. Yeah. In the um, call, I'm asking Omar about an execution he said he'd been a part of. One other detailed question that I um, that I have from from my writing when um when you described when you um had to, uh, when you had to execute that guy um according to uh, Sharia law. It's excruciating to listen to, both for what he says and for the way I keep up this facade that what we're talking about is somehow normal. How did you, did you do it with a knife? How did you do it exactly? Sorry to bring this uh, up. Just, <laughs> yeah, like on his, like his throat, you slice his, cut his throat? Yeah, basically. Like, how does that, how does that work? I, I'm not familiar with the law, nor like how one would actually go about killing someone. So give me, if you can, uh, if you can give me a little detail, that would be helpful. You make sure that your knife is, is sharp so that you don't put some guy through some crazy pain. Mm -hmm. And then uh, make sure that it's tight nicely so that, like, you, you also don't have to worry about, like, him jumping around and, like, more pain and what have you. So if the guy, if the guy is tied properly and then uh, and blindfolded and then uh, your knife is sharp, then the guy, he's not really going to realize that he's got his neck hurt. The only he's going to realize is that, like, he did. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, it's, it's one of the, one of the, like, it's one of the most humane ways to do it if it's done properly. Did he, but he didn't know, did he know it was coming? No, I don't know, because he was really calm about the whole thing, and then, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think maybe he thought that we were just going to, like, uh, film him and then, like, let him go or something. I don't know. I, I'm not really saying. But you didn't film him, right? 
I didn't tell him he was going to be slaughtered. He just saw that we had a camera, and then he's like, okay, these guys tied me up, all right. Then he's blindfolded, and next thing he knows, he's dead. <laughs> but but, but so, did, you, did you film it? Yeah, yeah. What, what did you think when you watched it? Well, I thought that I did a pretty good job. I mean, like, uh, the guy didn't, didn't go for any pain or anything, so uh, happy about that. The day Omar died, after my story about him ran on the nightly news, his parents called. They thanked me for my reporting. They asked how I was feeling. In their voices, I could hear a mixture of relief and pain. Towards the end of the call, Shafiq told me that I would always be welcome in their home. After 15 minutes, we got off the phone. I had no idea how I was supposed to make sense of Omar's death. I was alone in New York City in an empty apartment. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So, the next morning, I got on a plane to Alabama. American Jihadi is produced by Endeavor Audio and 222 Productions. It's hosted and executive produced by me, Christoph Putzel of Hidden Door Media. Our producers are Julia Botero and Zach Hirsch, with help from Pallavi Katamasu and Ashley Cleek. Our senior producer is Brent Renault. Our editor is Keith Romer. Our managing producer is Samantha Allison. This episode was mixed by Hannes Brown with sound design by Hannes Brown and Zach Hirsch. Business affairs, Shoshana Jakobov. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard. Executive producers include Adam Levine, Josh Gummersall, and Adam Harrison of 222 Productions. Dave Easton of Endeavor Audio and Jonathan Hirsch of Neon Hum Media. Coming up on the last episode of American Jihadi. When you came to the door, I thought, Christoph is going to fall apart. But he didn't. He came in and stayed talking to us and reassuring us and trying to I think comfort us and maybe bring a little happiness. I mean, he was just so particular about so many like things that seemed insignificant, like like the pants rolling and how many inches it was from your ankles. Like, why would you not follow the teachings when it's something big, like someone's life?